grab your Bibles and go with me to the Word of the Lord. Amen. It's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. Amen. And I need some folks to help me preach this morning. Amen. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 1. When you get it, shout amen. Amen. Alright, we got a few fast hands around here, but we'll wait for a few more. And uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. And it reads like this, And it came to pass on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn, and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. This rubbing them in their hands was a way of holding the grain. And if you notice in verse 1 of this chapter we just read, this happened on the Sabbath day. And what was plucking the ears of corn and rubbing them in their hands by the Pharisees was considered to be a sin. Uh, because they had made the law of God something that it was not. Amen. And they began to condemn them. People that were hungry trying to be fed. And the Bible says in verse 2, And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why? Do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not so much, have you not read so much as this, what David did when himself was in hunger, and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which it is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And it came to pass also on the on another Sabbath, so another Sabbath day that is talked about here in the Scriptures, that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. Amen. In the synagogue, as in any other gathering place, were found human problems, human challenges, and also human opportunities. But the difference about in the house of God, amen, was that Jesus was there on this particular day, and he was the divine answer provider. Amen. Verse 8 says, But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And it was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Amen. Jesus was genuinely angry with those people that day who had so twisted the scriptures and the law that was intended to give the people rest, such as the Sabbath day. But they would rather that a man continue to be afflicted 
than to be healed on the Sabbath day. They've gotten so caught up, amen, in their own thoughts and ideologies and philosophies that they refuse to allow someone to be healed on the Sabbath day and because it could be considered work. And the Pharisees had on their own added many requirements to the law of Moses that God had never intended. The Pharisees had looked at the law of Moses and had added here and added there and kept on adding until finally you couldn't even pluck corn and eat food and be healed on the Sabbath day without it being a sin. But the Bible says that this man's hand was withered that we read about in Luke chapter number 6. And this withered could mean that it was either shrunk or was wasted or perhaps was paralyzed. And I want to just preach for a few moments here this morning on this topic, the restoration. The restoration. Amen. Would you set your Bibles down? And would you help me pray one more time that God would talk to each and every every one of us. God, we thank you for the privilege that we have on this Sunday morning to come into the house of the Lord. We pray, God, that you would speak to every heart, to every life, God. I ask you humbly today as your servant that you would anoint my lips of clay to speak as the mouthpiece of God. And open every, Lord, anoint every heart and mind to be receptive to your word. And will not fail to give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. According to hotcars.com, Restoring a classic car should never be taken lightly or without a plan or with a small budget. It takes a painstaking amount of hours, this article says, to restore some of these monsters that have been beaten up and left to rot and rust in barns and forests and deserts. And most car restoration projects they take tens of thousands of dollars to embark upon. But the end product can easily be well worth it many times if it's done right on the right vehicle. And it can fetch ten times the amount if the car is in high demand. Before Bugatti became best known for selling ridiculously priced high-end exotic supercars, They were a manufacturer of classics like the Type 57S Adelante. This rare Bugatti disappeared shortly after its purchase over half a century ago by a reclusive doctor. It was discovered a few years ago by the children of Dr. Harold Carr who had passed on recently and left the garage to his family. Upon his death, amen, they began to go through his stuff and his children found that when they opened the garage, they found this magnificent car, though it was rusted over quite a bit. The kids of Dr. Harold Carr really did not know what they had on their hands when they discovered this Type 57S in their late father's garage. And even though modern Bugattis sell the most expensive production cars on the planet, I believe the latest number was about $1 million for a brand new Bugatti. Uh, 
these cars, amen, were incredibly, they are incredibly expensive today. But even though these modern Bugattis sell at this very high price point for over seven figures many times, even cars like the Chiron and the Veyron pale in comparison to what this 1937 Type 57S Adelante fetched at an auction. This 80-year-old beauty cleaned up, was cleaned up and was restored before finally being evaluated and then sold for the whopping price of $8.8 million. Amen. It was a massive restoration project that for many years was sitting in somebody's garage, forgotten about, rusted over, amen, neglected, and, and nature began to deteriorate this vehicle. But then when the children discovered it and they put it into the hands of the right person, they began to see the incredible value that it had. However, the thing that you must keep in mind is in the process of restoring or from taking it from the old stage to this current stage is you cannot just add any current uh, materials or current parts to this type of vehicle if you want to get top dollar. The only way you're going to get $8.8 million that this car fetched is going back to the original parts, the original manufacturer, the original uh, details, and the original, everything had to be original, amen, for it to fetch this whopping $8.8 million price. There has to be original restoration of a vehicle if you want to get top dollar for it. If you were to take the 1937 uh, uh, Bugatti picture here and add to it Honda Accord parts and begin to put into it Toyota parts and, and, and Chevrolet pieces and parts you find from a local pick and pull and, and try to piece it together, it would still not be worth hardly anything. But when you begin to go back to the original parts and you begin to go back to its original form and take it back to its former glory the way that the designer and the architect and the builder originally designed it to be, then the price point begins to go up exponentially. The, the reason for this price point is because the original form of this vehicle was the most valuable form of the vehicle. Hallelujah. The original form of this vehicle uh, is the most valuable form of the vehicle. And, and I would hope, I think we'd all hope that we can eventually land our hands on something like this and, and get that whopping cash out price of $8.8 million. But the thing that I want to point out from this story here today, thank you, Sister Gina, amen, for putting that up there, is that restoration is transformation. Amen. From an old rust bucket car in some forgotten garage with no life and no promise to a beautiful, functional, creator-intended purpose for all the world to see and to appreciate and to enjoy. This was a radical transformation. The only way you could get to that shiny, beautiful car that we had on the screen a moment ago from the previous picture of the old rust bucket found in some forgotten garage was there had to be a man transformation that began to take place amen as somebody took perhaps some sandpaper and began to rub on on that car and begin to do their best amen to bring it back down to that primer stage and then work it over and polish it and paint it and do all of the things 
that is involved in that transformation and that restoration. And in this story that we read in Luke chapter number 6, amen, this man was found in the synagogue or the, the house of God. And he had, the Bible says, a withered hand. The Bible lets us know that this withered hand, if you study scripture, was more than likely a hand that was shrunk and shriveled up and was not functional. Amen. It was the intent of Jesus Christ as he came upon this man with the withered hand not to begin to work with, amen, that the hand in its deformed state and begin to add fingers or, or add knuckles, amen, but it was the will of God, amen, when God sets out to heal and to restore and to deliver, it was to make the right hand the same as the left hand with the same size palm and the same fingers, amen, everything would be restored to its complete wholeness and newness in the way that it was originally intended. Yes. I'm telling the church this on this Sunday morning because sometimes you and I can come to God and we can come to the church house and we can think, well, if I'll just get a little bit of Holy Ghost, it is an add-on. It will be a trinket add-on to my life. It will be something that I just keep going on with my life. But now I include church. Now I include a few more things. Amen. That's not the way that God intended it to be. God intends it to be the restoration. Amen. A restoring to the original pattern. A restoring to the original design. Hallelujah. It, this Holy Ghost, this church thing is not something you sprinkle on to your current platter of food and life. This is not something that you add on. Amen. It's not an optional thing that you add on. But when God sets to work on your life, God says, I want to take it back to the original plan that I had in the Garden of Eden. I want to take the individual life that comes to the altar and restore it to the original plan in the Garden of Eden. Where there was fellowship and oneness and harmony and unity with God. Also on another side of the spectrum, the church of the living God. Amen. Has gone. Uh, God wants to take it back to the original form in the book of Acts. Let me take a few moments and explain to you what has happened through the last several millennia of history. As you begin to read your Bible, you, you work your way from Genesis to Revelation, you find an unfolding story of redemption. Amen. But what happened at the close of Revelation? What happened as John the Revelator penned the final words on the final page of the parchments that he had in front of him that day? What took place following, amen, the last apostle to die? onto the scene, uh, amen, in the post-apostolic age, if you study, amen, church history and doctrinal history. As you turn the pages of history and the years begin to turn to decades and the decades begin to turn to centuries, the leaders in the church, amen, the church at large, and I'm using that, church, that, that term very broadly, the, the leaders of the church at large in the world begin to try to equate the Word of God to modern Greek philosophy. And they tried to explain the Word of God in such a way that would fit, amen, the Greek thinking of their age. They tried to explain the terms of the Godhead. They tried to explain Jesus in a way that would fit the Greek mindset and fit, amen, the current thinking and philosophies of that day. 
Amen. Which they would we would find out later through history and the study of history that it was very dangerous to do such a thing. This practice of trying to conform the gospel and the word of God to the world around them eventually led to gross mishandling of the word of God and from and to much strain from original truth. Amen. These things of, of the trying to modify the understanding and try to get it to fit. Amen. The common vernacular and try to fit. Amen. Greek philosophy. It led to much traditionalism. If you study your history, and it, it led to many man-made ideologies and man-made practices until eventually the church, I'll use the term in quotation, the church was involved in all sorts of things. And there was so much that the church was doing that was not anymore in the Word of God, similar to what the Pharisees were doing in Luke chapter number 6, when they were condemning a man, a man from being healed on the Sabbath day. And they they were condemning the apostles from eating corn on the Sabbath day. They got so far away from the original intent of God. And then you have different leaders that would begin to rise up through the pages of history. And you had one particular man by the name of Martin Luther. This is not Martin Luther King Jr., but this is Martin Luther. And he rose up in others and he brought about what is known as the Great Reformation, which was in essence just trying to keep the status quo but make a few minor modifications The Reformation was let's stay within the Mother Catholic Church, but let's not rock the boat too much. Amen. Let's try and stay in the old ways and the the man-made traditions of doing things. Amen. But let's make a few tweaks and a few modifications. In other words, let's take the old Bugatti, the old beautiful car, and let's put on some Toyota parts because I think it'd be a good idea. And I think we should put in some Honda Accord parts and whatever else. And they tried to reform the church, keeping it, amen, as it was existing currently in that day, which was far removed from the original intent. Stay with me for a few more moments. Amen. But even they begin to realize years later after the Reformation, amen, people begin to realize that what they needed was not more man-made traditions. Amen. And even the Reformation fell grossly short of what was originally intended. And then they realized that they, in fact, what they needed was restoration. Amen. The leaders of the church world, as as time began to pass on, and you study church history, eventually realized, no, the Reformation fell very, very short in fulfilling the plan of God. What we need is restoration. And what is the restoration? The restoration, just like the car picture we showed on the screen a moment ago, is going back to the original plan. It is restoring the original parts, the original working plans and parts, amen, that the Creator designed and designated it to be. Restoration to the original plan. Restoration to the original church. Restoration to the original plan of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We've got too many churches in 2021 that are adding, amen, old trinkets and they treat the things of God as an add-on to their current life. And they say, well, keep living the way that I'm living and I'll sprinkle in a little bit of Sunday morning church. I'll sprinkle in a little bit of Wednesday night church. I'll sprinkle a little bit of reading my Bible. But no, 
hallelujah here as the church leaders of the of this uh, period of time as as time begin to travel on and continue to move forward amen we find ourselves looking through the pages of history and we find ourselves at the turn of the century in the year 1901 on January the 1st in Topeka Kansas amen i believe it was Charles Parham begin to talk about the need for the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And there began to be a turn in the direction of going back to the original intent, what God intended. And through the teachings of Charles Parham, amen, the young people began to reach out to God. And one young person began to pray earnestly for the same book of Acts experience. And he began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Ghost gave him the ability. And that Holy Ghost, amen, that the Bible says will lead us into all truths, continued to work in the lives of this group of people in Topeka, Kansas, until five years later, around the time of 1906, at a Bonnie Bray house on Azusa Street in the city of Los Angeles. And still yet later, out of the Arroyo Seco camp meeting, people began to yearn to go back to the original plan for the church in the book of Acts. And at the Arroyo Seco camp meeting, somebody began to stand up, Brother uh, McAllister, I believe his name was, he began to say, you know what, every time somebody was baptized in the scriptures, in the New Testament, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And suddenly people began to study the scriptures, and they began to say, you know what, I found something original from the plan of God in the book of Acts. And there was a yearning and a turning and a desire in the hearts of God's people to go back to the original plan of God. To go back to what was listed in the book of Acts and say, how can we go back to what God wanted this church to be? And how can we make the present day church mirror what the first church looked like? Amen. In order to do that, amen, they realize that no longer did you buy indulgences to pay for your sins. Amen. But you have to repent of your sins. You have to turn away from your ways. Amen. You couldn't just purchase your, amen, right to see your sins forgiven and, and try to bypass your, the dealing with the sin problem. But you had to repent of your sins. Amen. And going back to the original, they found out that you had to be water baptized by immersion or by being fully covered in water. And it had to be in the name of Jesus. In going back to the original plans, they found out that every time somebody received the Holy Ghost, it did not involve a shaking of the preacher's hand. It did not involve not even always laying on of the hand, amen, of somebody on their forehead. But it involved each and every time someone got the Holy Ghost, it involved speaking in an other language that they did not understand. Hallelujah. And it involved, amen, having an outward life of holiness. There was an ongoing difference and change that was made in their life. Sister Gina, would you put back the old picture, if you would, for a moment? The only way that you can go from, amen, this old vehicle, this old, it was a rust bucket when they found it. They probably cleaned it up a little bit here. But the only way you can go from this to the next picture, amen, is there has to be going back to the original. Amen. If this is to be the church that God has called it to be, if you are to be the child of God that God has called you to be, you've got to go back to the original plan, the book of Acts, and say, God, how can my life best mirror this word of God, this original plan for my life? It's going to involve understanding where I've got to, amen, cut off the options and the alternatives. And 
as they began to study out the original plan of God for the church, they came across one scripture, amen, and it was a resounding scripture in their ear, in their ears. It was a scripture found in the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, amen. They called it the finished work of Calvary. Hallelujah, sanctification happens, amen, from this scripture in one experience. When we believe on the Lord Jesus, we will repent of our sins. We will be water baptized in Jesus' name, and we will be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, maybe I'm preaching to somebody in this place today. Maybe I'm preaching to somebody on the outside of this building today. Or maybe I'm preaching to somebody on the internet today. This is the finished work of Calvary. This is the original plan that God had for the church and for the people of this world. It's repentance, it's water baptism, it's the Holy Ghost in feeling. But you look even more closely at the, uh, the original plan in the book of Acts. And if this church is to be that beautiful car, if you will, if I can make the comparison for a few moments. If this church is to be that, that beautiful finished product, shiny and beautiful and functional. If this is to be the church that God intended it to be. Hear me today, church. We've got to go back to the original plan in the book of Acts. And see what happened back in the book of Acts. What happened in the Acts of the Apostles. And how can my life best reflect that word of God for my life. Hallelujah. And I expect this next few moments to get quiet. I hope it doesn't, but I kind of expect it once in a while. In the book of Acts, you find the following components. There was prayer. There was fasting that happened on an ongoing basis. People were constantly praying. They were fasting. They were seeking God. And it was that originality of the church that brought about the unity of the Spirit. It will be a church that prays. We'll be a church that passed. Amen. There will be a church that is united. Amen. That is synchronized. That is in harmony. The book of Acts was characterized by a togetherness in the house of God. You read the book of Acts, they were coming together in the house of God. If this is to be the apostolic church of the book of Acts, there should be a coming together, a gathering together, amen, of people from every walk of life, the blacks, the whites, the reds, the yellows, the browns, every skin color, every language, the rich, the poor, the middle class. There should be a coming together in the house of God. If this is to be the church as the book of Acts had, it should be a church faithful to the house of God. It should be a church that lives a repentant lifestyle according to the book of Acts. It should be a church, amen, that believes you must first repent of your sins. You've got to turn from your ways. Again, this is not an add-on. This is not a check-the-box kind of thing. This is a restoration. Going back to the original, that's what God wants to do. Just like you did in Luke chapter 6 with the man with the withered hand. You didn't just say, well, maybe I'll just add three digits, three fingers to this guy's withered hand. Maybe I'll just fix one of the fingers. No, I'm going to make it whole again. I'm going to restore it to brand new. The other thing we find in the book of Acts was there was an outpouring of the Holy Ghost 
There were folks receiving the Holy Ghost. The Bible talks about in the book of Acts that souls were added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Amen. People were coming to the house of God. There was new people coming all the time because great news spreads fast. When you got something great, something amazing, you're going to tell everybody about it. When you finish up your awesome world trip vacation, you you just went to Vienna, Austria, you went to uh, Budapest, or you went to whatever, uh, you know, Bangkok, Thailand, or you went to whatever part of Russia, or whatever, whatever beautiful place. As soon as you get back to your job on Monday morning, I got to tell you about my vacation. It was amazing. It was so incredible. I went here and I went there. We did this and we did that. And I saw this famous person there and I got his autograph. And, and you're telling everybody about your vacation. Amen. It should be similar. Amen. When you come to God. Amen. I've got to tell you what Jesus did in my life. I've got to tell you what happened in my life. Something happened in my life. Amen. I don't even know how to explain it. But God showed up in my life in a big way. And I've got to tell the world about it. Amen. There should be a spreading of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there should be great revival if you and I will begin to pray and fast and come together in the house of God and pray for one another and live for God with all of our hearts. There will be great revival in this church. It is the will of God. It is the plan of God. It is the original intent of God for the abundant life center of Lathrop. And there was a return to holy living. You read also through history, and there was there was many people that through the things that transpired in church history, they began to realize if we're going to live for God, we can't just be wholesale Christians. That term came into being, amen, when you had the emperor Constantine that took over uh, a kingdom, and he said, I want the kingdom to be united. So I'm going to make Christianity the official religion of the world, the kingdom that I, that I reign over. He said, you've got to all be Christian tomorrow. You've got to all be Christian tomorrow. This is the official religion. If you're not Christian, you're going to be cast out of the kingdom. You're, going to, you're not going to excel in society. It's going to be advantageous for you to be a Christian. So he made everybody a Christian. And people became wholesale Christians. So in the process of that happening, there was no genuine repentance. They just came into the church and said, okay, I'm Christian. i got to be Christian because, amen, President Biden says i got to be Christian. Or, you know, the, the Emperor Constantine says i got to be a Christian. Whatever it is, amen. But there was no genuine repentance that happened in the lives of the people. And so people began to realize if, I've got, if we're going to go back to the original plan of God, amen, there's got to be some change that happens in my life. There's got to be some holy living. You begin to read the history. And there was a group of people that began to uh, separate themselves. They began to purify themselves. They began to come out from among them, as the Bible says. And women said, you know, we can't, we can't be wearing jewelry. We can't be wearing hey, pants. We, we can't be looking like the world. And they began to say, we can't be wearing makeup no more. And our men need to dress like men. The women need to dress like women. And you read history. And they, they began to realize they need, there needs to be a change in my life. If I'm going to show that Jesus has completed the work in my life. Hallelujah. There's got to be change in my life. The women stopped cutting their hair. Amen. The men kept their hair short. And they began to talk holy. They began to dress holy. They realized that the emperor, 
outward change of an inward work in our lives. I'm talking about the restoration. Going back to the original plan. Going back to the original plan. If you'd stand with me today as I close, amen, here this morning. I want to read a story of a man by the name of Howard Hendricks that wrote this account. The man Howard Hendricks says, My happiest preteen memories take me back to Mason Park Swimming Pool on the east side of Houston. He says, Before I learned to swim on top of the water, I was diving into the deep end, which was against the rules, and swimming to the side, coming up for air next to the ladder. Howard Hendricks says, I shall never forget on one frightened occasion diving into that pool and swimming the wrong way. And getting into the traffic of those diving from the high dive board. He said gasping for air was his next thing he remembers. As he swallowed water and couldn't scream for help. And he was beginning to gag. He said there's a lifeguard on duty by the name of Teddy Muntz. That that dived into the pool upon seeing Howard in this pool. He dove into the pool and he wrapped him in his big arms and saved him from danger and quite probably death, he writes. He says, that day, Teddy was my savior and my rescuer. But he says an interesting thing in this account. He begins to describe how that drowning victims often fight their rescuers in the hysteria of that terrifying moment. Drowning victims quite often fight their rescuers in the hysteria of that terrifying moment. The same is often true for those who are floundering spiritually because their faith has suffered shipwreck. And I began to look into this a little bit more close and I found another account that says there are many terrible examples of a person coming to the rescue of a drowning victim only to drown themselves. It's so common that there is a name for it that is, it's called the, uh, an aquatic victim because of rescuer syndrome or Avere syndrome. But there are many reasons that rescuers can drown while many of the people that they rescue survive. Drowning victims, especially adults, can be dangerous. Someone who is panicking will instinctively clutch at anything and use it to push themselves up. This means oftentimes pushing their rescuer down further beneath them, which is easy to do if the rescuer is tired or if they pinned their rescuer's arms. If you witness someone drown, this person writes, most emergency responders agree that what you need to do is to look around, amen, for something buoyant that would float before you even get into the water or get into the boat or try to throw the drowning person something from shore. Swimming to someone who's drowning and trying to take hold of them is dangerous, even for professionals. There's a reason why lifeguards carry those orange plastic buoys over their shoulder. And it's not their need to accessorize and to look the part, but they do it for a reason. Because throwing throwing a drowning person something to keep them afloat, amen, allows them to hang on to something that is essential and that will eventually bring them up. But Howard Hendricks continues in his story and he says, a young man who strayed from the Lord 
but was finally brought back by the help of a friend who really loved him. And when there was full repentance and restoration, and I hark, and, I, and I, ho- I want to focus on that word, there was restoration. He said, I asked this Christian how it felt while he was away from God. And the young man said, it seemed like he was out to sea in deep water, in deep trouble. Amen. He began to describe what it was like to be away from God during this season of his life. And he, he described it as being out to sea in deep water. And all of his friends were on the shoreline hurling accusations at him about justice, about penalty, about his wrongdoing. Amen. But there was one Christian brother who actually, according to Howard, swam out to get me and would not let me go. He said, I fought him, but he pushed aside my fighting. He grasped me and put a life jacket around me and took me to shore. And by the grace of God, he was the reason I was restored. He would not let me go. Here on this Sunday morning, God wants to restore, amen, your life to its original plan. If you will allow God to throw you a life preserver today. God's not trying to add something to your life. God wants to take your life and restore it, amen, to the way he intended it to be. Amen. The things that the devil stole from you, whether it was your virginity, whether it was your purity, whether it was a sound mind, whether it was a wholesome family, whether it was the right relationship with your daddy, whatever it would be, the enemy stole it. God wants to restore it today. God's not just going to add to your life. God's going to restore it to its original plan, its original intent. I'm here preaching to somebody today on this Sunday morning. You wonder how your life could ever get back to the way God intended it to be. God will and God can and he's waiting on you to reach out and grab the hold of the word of faith this morning. It'll bring you up to that place where you'll find restoration as the music begins to play and every hand's lifted in this house this morning. I want somebody to begin to reach out to God. I want somebody to say, God, I'm not going to fight the man of God in the pulpit that's throwing me a life preserver. I'm not going to fight my rescuer. I'm not going to fight my Bible study teacher. I'm not going to fight my youth pastor. I'm not going to fight the man of God. I'm not going to be like that drowning victim that destroys the rescuer. But I'm saying, God, take me back. Take me back to the original plan you had for my life. If you're here today and you're away from God, your life doesn't even closely resemble the promise of God for your life. I'm throwing you a life preserver today. I'm preaching a word of faith. God can and He wants to restore your life to its original plan where you can come to God. You can come to the house of God and lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Oh, somebody needs to reach out to the Lord this morning.